Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah. Our goal tonight is to get to 43 and 44, which are very similar. And then chapter 45, a very unique, one of my favorite prophecies in the Bible concerning Cyrus. But let's go back to um, chapter 43. The theme, both for 43 and 44, is creation, redemption, uh, the preservation especially of Israel, uh, Israel's prospect, its future judgment, its deliverance, future redemption of Israel, the promise of the Spirit, um, sort of a sarcastic back and forth between the Lord's greatness and the futility of um, worshiping something made by man. And then uh, chapter 44 will end uh, with um, a prophecy concerning uh, Cyrus. So uh, this section of the scriptures, particularly this chapter, reveals that God is not through with the nation of Israel. It's tantamount to unbelief to deny that God had has a future purpose for the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, Paul was adamant about it. In Romans chapter 11, verse 1, he asked the obvious question, is God done with Israel? Is he through with working with them. And um, he has a very categoric, dogmatic answer, absolutely not. God is not done with his people, Israel. And he has seven years that he owes them, according to the prophecies of Daniel. 483 of those years are fulfilled, completed. Clock stopped when... um, Jesus told Israel, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Paul writing about it, he says, oh, the wisdom of God, how unsearchable are his ways to figure out a way to work us Gentiles into the plan of salvation by temporarily setting aside and allowing a partial blindness to happen to the nation of Israel. Both mainline Protestantism, mainline Roman Catholicism, deal with, I believe, um, what's called, the terminology is replacement theology. And I think uh, everybody here understands that. But I'm taking for granted we're always getting new people visiting. There's always new people watching us online. So um, I had Mary go online. I said, Mary, I just want a, a paragraph as we begin because the study is, I'm not through. He's God's future promises and plans to Israel. I'm just going to read what we got off the internet today, and it sums it up rather nicely. What is replacement theology? Replacement theology is the teaching that the Christian church has replaced national Israel regarding the plan, purposes, and promises of God. Therefore, many of the promises that God made to Israel must be spiritualized. For example, When it speaks of Israel being restored to the land, this really means that the Christian church will be blessed. Also, covenants made with Israel are fulfilled in the Christian church. For example, the Jewish people are no longer God's chosen people. Instead, the Christian church now makes up God's chosen people. In the New Testament, after Pentecost, the term Israel, when it's mentioned, refers to to the church, which isn't true. 
uh, the Mosaic Covenant is replaced by the New Covenant, and that's true, but only in light of being set aside temporarily, not permanently replacing. Actual circumcision is replaced by the circumcision of the heart, uh, talked about in Romans 2. So in replacement theology, the church has replaced Israel as the primary means by which the world is blessed by God's work. Then they quote, which I quote all the time, Romans 11, 25, and 26. I don't want you to be, um, they use a form word uninformed here to this mystery, but lest you be wise in your own estimations, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. On verse 26, and then all Israel will be saved. Just that is uh, written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. It's interesting that the church only claims the blessings of Israel and none of the warnings and none of the curses. Replacement theology is also known as super, uh, super uh, sensationalism, which means that the Christian church has superseded Israel and God's plan. It's called replacement theology. What this chapter is going to deal with tonight is there are certain unconditional promises that you just can't get around. God made them to Abraham. He made them to David. He told David that his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. And um, it's just a part of God's purposes and plans. And chapter 30, 43 and 44 are going to reinforce it. So let's read through. I'd like to go through the first seven verses of chapter 43. Chapter 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you, and I have called you by your name. You are mine. So that when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Nor shall the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, you have been honored and I love you. Therefore, I give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. Then he says, I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I have created for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. Now, in the context here, we're going to see Cyrus being used as God's instrument to bring them back to Israel. But as we read this here, he's talking about bringing them back from the, from the north, from the south, um, f- from all over the east. So what we have in view here is not the regathering from Babylon. This is something that has just happened. Isaiah 11, verse 11 says this, I will gather them again a second time into the land. I did a little, I had the girls do a little research today. I said, I, wanted, I want to know how many Jews from Russia 
have come back since they've been a nation. I want to know how many Ethiopian Jews have come from the south, Egypt. And then I want to know from all around the world, what's the number? Well, we actually found the numbers. Since uh, the rebirth of the nation, uh, just from Russia itself, we have 1,223,723. And that is growing. Uh, From Ethiopia, um, the Ethiopian Jews, they stick out like sore thumbs because, of course, they're black. But they're Jews. That's 91,825. Now, worldwide, those that have returned to a nation that has about 7 million in it right now, we have, uh, since the regathering, 3,108,678. I think that goes back to maybe 2013. So just imagine that amount of people. What does the Lord say? I'm going to gather them from the north. One of the main uh, groups coming are Russian Jews. And then from the south, primarily Ethiopia. But really right now, um, they're warning people and encouraging people, in France in particular, to go home. Go back to your land. And anti-Semitism is on the rise once again in Germany and in Europe. And so, of a country of a little more than 7 million, 6 million, of course, died during the Holocaust, almost half, 3 million, have been regathered uh, since they become a nation again. What you're looking at in chapter 43 of Isaiah is a prophecy. Every week I say, you've got to deal with prophecy. The Lord said it, those are the numbers. And uh, it is clearly not a picture of the return to Babylon. It's from the north, it's from the south, it's from the farthest parts of the east. I will bring your descendants from the east. And the Lord says, don't worry about it. I'm going to be orchestrating the whole thing. And I'm going to bring them back uh, into the land. Now, um, verses 8 through 10, I want to touch on 11. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the death who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witness, says the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Uh, one of the greatest miracles, honestly, you want a miracle? Look at Israel. No other nation, no other ethnic group has ever been dispersed for more than one generation without being completely assimilated into that culture. You're not going to find Hittites. You're not going to find uh, Philistines or Canaanites or any of these uh, groups. They were simply assimilated into whatever culture that conquered them. Not so with Israel. Wherever they went, they maintained their identity. They became a nation in one day as prophesied. Their original tongue of Hebrew was restored to them when it wasn't even the common language in Jesus' day. But the prophecy is it would be restored again in, um, in the land of Israel. 
Um, I called my friend uh, Zev Eisner today, who was our guide for many, many years, and um, asked him to be our, our um, group leader, our tour guide this year for when we go to Israel in November. And so when he picked up the phone, I said, Boker Tov. <laughs> and that's simply good morning. It was morning for me and afternoon for him, but that's simply uh, Hebrew for good morning. And um, so the language that they speak today is a prophecy fulfilled. And he's saying, you're my witness, Israel, the fact that you're back. And again, he emphasizes prophecy. Uh, Who among you can declare and show us the former things? Who but me, the Lord is saying, can tell you what's going to happen? Only I can do that. And what's going to happen is I'm going to bring them back from the north, the south, the east, and the west. And I look around and I say, is it true? Well, there's the numbers. Over a million from Russia, 91,000 from Ethiopia, and three million worldwide. Check it off. Just like the Lord said. Verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Jesus says there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. He's the only way. There is only one God. There are not other gods that are out there. Um, And he declares it. I have declared and saved, verse 12. I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God, small g, among you. Therefore, you're my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God, capital G. Indeed, before the day was, I am he. And there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who's going to reverse it? Who's going to stop me from doing what I want? Thus says the Lord God, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And again, let me just stop here and something that Paul reminds us of when he's talking to the Gentiles. He says, look out, you Gentiles. Better not be bragging. You're just a part of the branch. You're not the root. You've been grafted in to the true vine which is Israel. And so we're grafted into them. They're not grafted into us. And he says, so be careful when you talk um, about the Jewish people because they are the root and we've been grafted into them. Good place for an amen, don't you think? Amen. Amen. We've been grafted in. Uh, They're still the apple of God's eyes. Yes, he's dealing with them and he's working with them. And his purposes and plans are far from over because they extend where he says you'll no longer be the tail, but you're going to be the head. When is that going to happen? Well, for the next thousand years. That's at least seven years off from now, by the way. But when that, when that happens, Israel is going to be the head and not the tail. And I think the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is going to ask David uh, the most beloved of the kings of Israel, to sort of um, be the one who represents uh, the Lord in the thousand-year millennial reign. Okay, let's go on. I, Verse 15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horses, the army and the power. They shall lie down together, they shall not rise. 
They are extinguished, they are quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm going to do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostrich, because I'll give water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. Uh, This people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. So up to this verse here, the Lord is declaring over and over again, pointing again to the future, uh, his love, and he comes right out and says, I love you. Uh, You are the apple of my eye. And um, he will deal with the Babylonians and Chaldeans in, in his own way. In 22, even though this is what the Lord wants, this is how much he loves them, we have this word, but, in verse 22. It says, but you haven't called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. This reminds me of chapter 5, <clears throat> where the Lord talks about his vineyard. He says, what more could I have done? And I, pl- I planted the best grapes I could find, built towers to protect it, and uh, fertilized it on a regular basis. And when it came time to enjoy his fruit, it brought forth wild grapes. And um, this is what he's saying here. It reminds me of Jesus' words to Israel. Oh, Israel, how often I wanted to gather you unto myself, just like a, a mother hen gathers her, her chicks, but you wouldn't. There's a lot of theology in that, by the way, because he's not forcing them to follow. You know, nobody forced you, I hope, to come to the Wednesday night study. I mean, you're here because you want to get into God's word and and dig into it. And um, nobody forces anybody to love anybody. And when we're, when we're talking where the Lord says, I love you, hopefully you want that love returned in the same way it's been measured out to you. But, verse 22, you haven't done that. I've done all this for you, but you haven't called upon me. Nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me no sweet cane with with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. Instead of being a sweet aroma, I'm grieved that you're worshiping, and that's 43 now is going to get into, I would use the terminology, his, his axe to grind with the the idiocy of worshiping something made with human hands instead of a God that loves them. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, he who blots out your transgressions for my name's sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance and let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Uh, Your 
your first father sinned and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the prince of the sanctuary and I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. And they became um, uh, their bygone name for 2,000 years was wandering Jews because they wandered from place to place. They had no place that was home until after World War II. Now as we slip into um, this uh, 43 verse 28, um, we read, Therefore I profane the princes of the sanctuary, I will curse Jacob and Israel to reproach. This is pretty much the present condition of Israel today. Yes, they were gathered, but they really have no peace today because they have departed from the real, true, living God. Well, you have the Orthodox Jew, very zealous, um, but they try to, of course, keep the law, the covenants, and of course they can't. Chapter 44 continues the theme of 43, However, the last chapter closes with the dark mention of a coming judgment. And this chapter moves into the light of the coming kingdom and the promise of the Holy Spirit. But the chapter primarily um, is a bitter, devastating, sarcastic taunt, (laughs) if you will, of making gods and worshiping them instead of the true and living God. So chapter 44. Yet hear now, we'll go through the first six verses. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb. Who will help you? Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurim, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty. Now this is a prophecy about the millennium rain, and floods on the dry ground, I will pour my spirit out on your descendants and my blessings on your offspring. Um, The spirit has not yet been poured out upon Israel. But again, I find it interesting, when we get to Ezekiel 38 and 39, this is a future battle that will take place Chapter 39 basically tells us five-sixths of them that came against Israel in this war will hightail it and head home. Tells, it'll, tells us it'll take seven months just to bury the dead from that war. But what always struck me was the very last verse of chapter 39. And it says, Then I will, pour, I will have poured out my spirit upon Israel. And um, somewhere in this battle, either right before, during, or after, you have the Spirit, which is upon the church today, according to Second Thessalonians 2, that restraining force. And uh, even though we have so many issues that we're trying to stand up against as believers, Common Core, and the list just goes on and on, um, crossing lines all over the place. People are speaking up, 
Christians are speaking up. And um, we're doing some restraining, but just imagine if all that's removed overnight. Then what we save and um, just tell it like it is, then all hell is going to break loose. No more restraint. But God will then begin, after this war, the Spirit will be placed and poured out upon Israel. Ezekiel 39, the last verse. So verse 3 is a prophecy. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants. This is still yet future. And my blessings on your offspring. As we get past the seven-year tribulation into the kingdom age. All right, verse 4 uh, they will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I'm the Lord's. And another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. For thus says the Lord, the, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, uh, we got sidetracked on this um, last week, and I took you, remember, to Revelation chapter 1? And uh, this is what Jesus said to John, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega. It's in chapter 1. But it's also in Revelation chapter 22 where he repeats it and says, I'm the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. In other words, the A and the B, the beginning and the end. And he who proclaims as I do let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming shall come. Again, he is promoting prophecy. I'm going to declare what's going to happen, and it's going to happen. Let them show these to them, and do not fear nor be afraid. Um, have I not told you from the time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock I know, not one. And that's why, <clears throat> oh, what the heck, we can do a little sidetrack. We got a little time here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. I was watching a program about Dion DiMucci. I mentioned this, I think, on Sunday. And um, uh, Dion had an incredible conversion. And um, he learned his Christian ABCs at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. Unfortunately, being Dion, um, they wouldn't leave him alone because he's Dion. And so it was hard for him to get involved. His wife is uh, very Catholic. And when I saw this interview, he was 72, and he was referring back to 2006. But he was on a, a Catholic program that try, was trying to be hip and relate to this generation. So they were, they were playing Dion like a violin, and he, he just didn't have enough uh, rooting and grounding in the Bible to be able to answer questions as they were throwing him softballs, Catholic questions, so that he would answer with a Catholic answer. And he says, the thing that really got me, he says, I really couldn't find any authority. 
And I started to talk to my wife about it. And, and um, the only authority, of course, that I could get, come back to was the authority of the church. And, of course, Roman Catholicism claims to be the one and only true Catholic church. And so um, if he only would have understood uh, Matthew chapter 16 and what Jesus was saying, if he would have uh, simply had this Bible study, which I give every time we go to uh, uh, Caesarea Philippi in, uh, in uh, the headwaters of the Jordan in Israel, this is the Bible study I give. And I'll be doing it again this, this November. And this whole question, when they get there, who do men say that I am? And some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, some say a Jeremiah or some other prophet. Well, who do you say that I am? And it was Simon Peter, verse 16, who says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And the Lord commends him. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And, um, you know, Pete's got to be feeling pretty good about himself here. And then what Jesus says to him, and this is, this is the cornerstone scripture that Roman Catholic use as Peter being the first pope. And I say unto you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so here he's calling Peter out. Well done. You got a divine revelation from heaven, Peter. And because of this, you are Peter, and the word there in the Greek is petros, your stone. That's what Peter means, a stone. And then it says, and on this rock, different Greek word. Now, Roman Catholicism will tell you this is one and the same, that Peter is the rock. The word there is petra. We're talking the rock at Gibraltar. We're talking um, Isaiah chapter uh, 44, where the Lord says, indeed, there is no other rock. Jesus is the rock, and um, what the church is built on is not Simon Peter, uh, praise the Lord, because Simon Peter had foot and mouth disease, something terrible, and uh, it's not, the, the chapter isn't even over, and Peter's feeling pretty good about himself, and the Lord's explaining in verse 21 how he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and then be killed, and then rise again the third day. And then Peter, I could just see Peter taking him aside, and he began to rebuke him. Uh, God, come over here. You need to be rebuked. <laughs> but that's Peter. Um, he basically putting it in Peter's terminology, don't have to worry about it, Lord. Far be it from you. Uh, this shall not happen to you. Remember me, Rocky, Peter? Yeah, and he was. He's probably a big, strong, powerful man. And he's saying, I'm not going to let this happen to you. And now instead of getting commended and saying that you just received a revelation from heaven, he says, get behind me, Satan. Well, that's what the Lord said to the first pope. Get behind me, Satan. And by, by the way, if you're a pope, you can't be married. 
the Lord healed Peter's mother when she was sick. And so the first pope was married. Got to have a problem with that. And, um, and you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You're thinking of yourself, Peter. Well, if you go to Rome, they have a statue of Peter, and sure enough, here he is holding some keys. What does that mean? That you have the keys of the kingdom, and that the church is established in Rome under Peter. Well, let me tell you, for the first 300 years, there was no such thing. Not till Constantine uh, came along. There was that, that hierarchy, that bishopship was trying to, to creep in. Um, but this, this is, if Dion would have had this verse down, he's looking for authority. Well, the authority, and there's only one authority, and that is that um, the Lord himself, he says, upon this rock, the rock is not Peter, the rock is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Good place for an amen, guys. There's no other foundation. We have it laid. That, when we built this new addition, we have a cornerstone. No other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, and that is Jesus Christ. Who is the cornerstone of the church? Simon Peter? This very same thing he says to Peter, he says to all of them word for word in chapter 18. Um, oh, let me see if I can find it quick. Verse 18, he's speaking to all the disciples. 18, 18, assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will be loosed in heaven. And again, I say, if any two of you on earth concerning anything that is in heaven, it will be done by my Father in heaven. And um, he is speaking to all of them at this time. Do you know that you have just as much authority to tell a person that their sins are forgiven than Simon Peter or any person or any pope? And um, um, that's what the gospel is all about. We can tell people if you, you know, if, if you trust in Christ and him only for your salvation, by the authority of God's word, I can tell you, your sins are forgiven. And um, your name is now put in the book of life. And I'm saying it on the authority that the Lord gave to the church. He says, don't you guys know the Spirit of God dwells in you? Don't you know someday you're going to judge angels? How much more the little trivial things of earth? You have that responsibility. You have that charge. So, all right, let's get back to, I got sidetracked on verse 8 here. Indeed, there is no other rock. For the record, Simon Peter is a man with feet of clay. And... Um, the rock in Matthew chapter 16 is a reference to God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ. One other, one other place where the rock comes into view here. That's in Daniel chapter 2. And Daniel's talking about the image. Head of gold, chest of silver, and so on and so forth. Representing the world kingdoms that would come. But then it says, Daniel says, I was watching and out of nowhere comes this rock, okay? And the rock comes, and he smites the image, 
and the, the image is completely destroyed. It becomes like chaff, and the wind blows it away. And in its place, a mountain was elevated, and a kingdom was established. But this kingdom is going to last forever and ever and ever and ever. So another example, who is the rock? Well, it's the second coming of Jesus Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. And when he does, Psalm 2, the kingdoms of the world that are gathered together against him, he's going to be done with them in short order. And when he's done with them, he establishes his kingdom. But interesting, the symbolism is a rock that comes out of nowhere. So there's many other examples that we could use that Jesus is is the rock. All right, verse 9. Now, um, the sarcasm starts. Those who make graven images, all of them are useless. How's that for telling it like it is? And their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witness. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or cast a graven image that profits of nothing? Doesn't make any sense. Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And all the workmen's they're mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with his tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with a hammer, works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry, and his his strength fails. He drinks no water, and he's faint. It's just a man. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks out one with the chalk. He fastens it with a plane. He marks it out with a compass. It makes it like into a figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. For some reason, I got a picture of Michelangelo's David at this moment. And it is, a, as far as a, 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 the, having an artistic gift, that's one thing. And certainly, it's a marvelous work of art, but certainly not, not admired, yes, but worshipped, no. Uh, he hews down cedar. In other words, he just cuts down a tree. He takes a cypress of the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. Then he uh, plants a pine, and the rain nourishes it. Uh, then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself, uh, and then he'll take some more, and he'll use it to cook his supper. And then, indeed, he makes a god with what's left over and worships it, all out of the same piece of wood. I hope you're catching the sarcasm here. Uh, he makes a carved image and falls down to it. Now, they literally do this. I remember in the 90s, I was in a place called Ramashwam. It's an island off the shore of... Um, the state of uh, Tamil Nadu in southern India. And if you're Hindi, this is one of two places where you go to have your sins forgiven. And they actually have pil- pilgrimage that goes to, um, to this place. And, um, and we were there, and it was evening. And I remember we were doing a night uh, crusade uh, but that very evening, uh, on different corners of the block, they have uh, they almost look like coffins standing upright, and they have glass doors. And what they do is they have one of their gods in there, 
And what they'll do is they'll open up the door, they'll take out their God, they'll put it on a cart, and they'll prance all the way around the city with it. And um, I was curious about their customs and their rituals. And I said, what's the deal with them coming down here and going out in the water and washing? He says, well, it's the only way their sins can be forgiven. So they travel from all over India. Of course, the Ganges is in the north, but Rameshwam, like I said, is in the south. And I witnessed it. We went down to the beach, and they're there by the thousands just going in, um, believing that when they come out, their sins are going to be washed away. And the idea here is they carry about their little idols at night, and that's exactly, um, you know, our country, well, at least it was a Judean Christian country, um, you know, that we, we see that as foolishness and superstition. And yet, to them, uh, with their caste system and the, the, the highest hierarchy is, is the Brahmas, they didn't do any work. They walk around the country dressed in their orange robes, and people take care of them. They're at the top of the chain of the caste system. Bottom in the chain, they're called the untouchables. Their, their jobs are cleaning toilets, and they're called untouchables because they do that job, and nobody will touch them. Well, when they heard the gospel, just within the last 20 years, 300 million of uh, what we call Dalits, or the untouchables, when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God is no respecter of people, that there's no difference between the Brahmas on top, and the untouchables on the bottom? You don't think they're going to accept the Lord? Yeah, more than 300 million. Uh, and the need to minister to, to all, all these believers. But I was there. I, I watched them carry the little gods around and go into the ocean thinking that they can have their sins washed away by just walking there because it's deemed a holy site by some Brahma. All right, we got left off um, with a man taking an ordinary piece of wood. He'll burn some of it to keep warm. He'll use some of it to make his supper. And then he'll use the rest of it to make a god. Um, And he says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it prays to it and says, deliver me, you are my God. And they do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I've baked bread on coals. I've roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Switching gears, he's sort of, um, (laughs) to say this is sarcasm at his highest, and the Lord is, is mocking. Well, he is. Because it's absurd. Now, picking it up in 21 through 26, the Lord is basically saying, what will I do for Israel? 
He says, remember these, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. Remember, I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins, so return to me, for I have redeemed you. And sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Only when a person, when he's happy and he's free, does he feel like singing songs. And only Christians, of all the religions in the world, do I see having this freedom. I went home today, took care of a couple big branches that just missed my car by this much, (laughs) with these 50-mile-an-hour gusts. And I I watched a little bit of news, but then I didn't feel like doing that anymore. I was ready for tonight, so I sat down. And my wife and I just sat around and sang songs for about a half an hour. You know why? Just because we felt like it. <laughs> and there's, um, that's, I think, the simple response to just um, knowing that every day is a fresh start with the Lord. That um, if you do blow it, and you will, and when I blow it, and I do, that First John 1, 9 is still in effect. If you confess your sins, he's faithful, he's just, to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from some of your unrighteousness. Right? You all know better because you know your Bible. To cleanse you from all. And you have the clean slate all over again. And that's what he's saying here. I'm going to blot them out and I'm not going to remember them anymore. Now that's love. And um, as, as good as we want to try to be, you're not going to make it. Paul says, I have not yet attained I, for what I've been apprehended for, I'm not going to attain to it, not in this, this world. And he, he acknowledges that. But the Lord is basically saying, look, guys, I am in your corner. And um, verse 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I'm, I'm the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of, of the babblers and diviners, diviners mad, who turn aside wise men backward and make their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs in counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built. And they are, and they're beautiful. And I will rise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Now, verse 28 is where it gets interesting. Um, Verse 28 is a reference, and he says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, who says to the deep, dry up, and I will dry up your rivers. Um, I'm not going to be dogmatic about verse 27, but I do believe it's part of verse 28. I do feel strongly that verse 28 should be part of chapter 45. 
Um, this verse here, keep in mind that this verse really belongs in the next chapter. This is a remarkable prophecy now concerning Cyprus. Cyrus. We're going to switch gears big time as we get into chapter 45. This is a remarkable prophecy. Here he names Cyrus about 200 years before he's even born. He is designated as my shepherd, or as a servant of the Lord. Um, So as we look at the end of this here, 28, let's read it. Who says of Cyrus, remember that Daniel said he reigned up until the third year of Cyrus. Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform my pleasure even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. All right? Again, you can't get around prophecy. And uh, I have a lot of favorite ones. This Sunday is Palm Sunday. And so we have so many prophecies being fulfilled This about the Lord's coming on Palm Sunday. We have Psalm 118. Um, we have the prophecy of him riding in on a, on, on a, on a donkey. Uh, of course, we have Daniel 9. And Palm Sunday is, th- those verses are some of my favorite, but this is right up there with it, what we're about to read in chapter 45. So let's dive in. He's calling a person by name, Cyrus. Very rare in the Bible. Verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked place straight, I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you, Cyrus, the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I am the Lord, who call you by name. I am the God of Israel, and for Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect, I have called you by your name." And I have named you, though you have not known me. Let's just, oh, let's read down to verse six. I am the Lord, there is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you, though you have not known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I formed the light, created the darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. All right, let's go back in our mind's eye to Daniel chapter 5. And let me just tie in something I I personally find interesting. How quickly a nation can fall. Assyria, the greatest empire of its time, nobody could touch it, came down in one night with one angel, right? Last week, 185,000. Uh, And that was the end of Sennacherib, the king. He was killed the next night by his two sons. And basically, you have the end of an empire and the rise of Babylon. Now, Babylon has risen. 
and Nebuchadnezzar finally gets saved, when you read chapter four, it's his personal testimony. And now his grandson, and we read here, Belshazzar, makes a feast, and he, remember, they have looted. Remember Hezekiah? And Isaiah come to him and says, um, I gave you that extra 15 years, and what happened? Except that the Babylonians came down and saw all the riches and treasures of Jerusalem. And Isaiah says, uh-oh, you blew it big time. He says, thus says the Lord, this is what's gonna happen. They're gonna come down, they're gonna take the cream of the crop of, uh, of your descendants, uh, Hezekiah, mainly Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're going to become eunuchs. That's exactly what happened. Daniel chapter 1. And then he says, they're going to take all your treasures that, that your fathers have stored up. Now, we're, Solomon's yearly intake of gold was 666 talents a year. He reigned for 40 years. And what he did for a hobby was just get richer and richer and richer. So imagine this accumulating and being stored somewhere and being inherited and passed down from one king to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. When we're talking treasure, we're talking big treasure. So we read here that Belshazzar, Babylon's gonna fall in one night. Uh, They have no fear, even though Darius, the Medes and the Persians, are outside, they have the place surrounded, but they have 300 foot walls. They have 450 foot towers. There's no way they can get in to Babylon. And so instead of worrying about it, they're having a drunken orgy, and they decide to use, verse three, the vessels from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and and they drank from them, they drank wine, and they praised the God of gold and silver bronze, wood, and stone. And all of a sudden, here's the hand. Comes out and writes on the wall. Nobody could interpret it. And um, Daniel interprets it and says, you've been weighted in a balance, Belshazzar. Your kingdom's been divided between the Medes and the Persians. Darius the Mede and Cyrus is the Persian. And how they conquered Babylon was this way. The Euphrates rivers flows through the middle of Babylon. And what they did is went a couple miles upstream, dug a completely new channel, and diverted the Euphrates River so that if you go back to chapter 44 where it says, I will dry up your rivers, I'm not going to be dogmatic about that, but I think that's what's in mind here because Cyrus is mentioned next. And we find that night, Babylon fell. We would say without firing a shot. Just like the Lord protected Jerusalem without firing a shot. He says, hear hear the word of the Lord, Hezekiah. Not one arrow is going to come over this wall. And the king, the same way he came, that's the same way he's going home. That's exactly what happened. So we read here how he's going to do it Uh, I will break in pieces the gates of bronze. Once the Medo-Persian army made it underneath the wall, they completely took the city 
by surprise. And they opened up the gates. And um, I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. They just walked in. Once they had enough guys get in from underneath, they walked the water level, came down, they walked under. They didn't have to go over. They couldn't. And he's saying, I'm going to give all this to you. And he mentions, um, I will call you even by your name. I'm going to put a picture up painted by Rembrandt at this time. What I'm about to tell you is um, I can't prove it. It is a, it's a part of, uh, of things that have been passed down from generation to generation. It's not in the scriptures. But um, this is what I believe happened. It says that Daniel, of course, because he interpreted this, this dream by Belshazzar, what he did is he said he was going to give him, he clothed him in purple, gave him a gold chain and up to a third of the kingdom. So even though the kingdom falls, who's really in power? Well, Daniel. Um, When it comes Christmas time, he was called chief of the Magi. And the Magi came from the far east. They came from Persia. And Daniel was the chief of them. Now, the picture that you're seeing here is a picture of Daniel pointing out to Cyrus his name in the Bible. Now try to picture this. You ride in as a conquering king. Here comes Cyrus, riding in. And who's the first person that you run into? Oh, well, I, this is how I think it came down. I think it was Daniel. And I think he rode up to Cyrus and he says, can I show you something that was written about you 200 years ago? Now what if I walked up to you? What if I walked up to Jerry here? I said, now Jerry, I'm gonna open my Bible here Let me just show you something that God spoke just about you, Jerry Ron, 200 years ago. And I'm going to call you you out by name. Do you think he would have Cyrus' attention? Oh, yeah, he had Cyrus' attention. And I believe that Daniel laid out the whole thing to him and probably gave him much, much more. But I think he went to Isaiah. 200 years later, he says, look, this was written 200 years ago. And God said that this is what you're going to do. And um, he called you by name so that he would know. I think the Lord had already prepared his heart for this little speech. And I'm pretty sure that it was either Daniel or one of Daniel's students that just laid out Isaiah chapter 45 before him. And as a result of this, this is exactly what happened. And... um, uh, Cyrus allowed them to worship the way they wanted to worship. And um, we have here this being fulfilled literally. Now, when, when we read this here in chapter 45, <clears throat> Cyrus was named and identified almost 200 years before he was born. This unusual prophecy has caused the liberal critic to construct out of the web of his imagination the figment of his great unknown writer of this section of the book of Isaiah. In other words, this is too spot on. It had to be written by somebody else after the fact because it's so much a part 
of history that happened. The fact that Isaiah could name a name two centuries before it appears is just too strong a tonic for the weak of faith of an unbeliever. And they say, well, only God can do that. And then we get to go, duh. Yeah, exactly. Only God can do that. Um, When Cyrus appeared on the scene, there would have been no misunderstanding about who Isaiah had spoken. Also, Cyrus would would be the man responsible for a decree that would return the, the nation Israel to her land. Another reason Isaiah called Cyrus by name through the revelation of God was so that his accuracy could be demonstrated. If in 200 years Isaiah would be accurate about Cyrus, he also would be accurate in his promise and prophecy concerning one born of a virgin, Emmanuel, God with us, who was to come 700 years later. The instructed Israelite would have and should have been prepared for Christ's coming, and that's never more true than what we're going to be studying this Sunday. They should have known. Matter of fact, in Luke 19, the Lord holds them to it. He said, you should have known the time of my coming. And because you didn't know, this is what's going to happen. Um, they're going to tear down the temple. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. And um, you're going to be dispersed. And that was quoted by Jesus in 32 AD, 38 years later in 70 AD. It happened when the Roman 10th Legion came down and did exactly what Jesus said. The very reason for the fall of Jerusalem is because they didn't know Daniel chapter 9. And it's amazing because Daniel Daniel understood it by reading Jeremiah. All right, let's finish up our chapter here tonight. And I'll let you know how, how Charles Spurgeon got saved in clothing. Uh, got saved. Rain down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, let them bring forth salvation. And let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. And woe to him who strives with his maker. Uh, let the potshred uh, strive with the potshreds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who formed it? What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, why why have uh, you brought forth? For thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, his maker, ask of me the things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands and command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. It is I, my hand that stretched out the heavens, and all their host I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all of his ways. He shall build my city, and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and the merchants of Cush, And the Sabians and the men of stature shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over you in chains. And they shall bow down to you, and they will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly you are God 
who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together who make who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation, and you shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who, who did not create it in vain, who, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. So assemble yourselves together and come. Draw near together. You who have escaped from the nations, they have no knowledge. Again, back to the sarcasm with the idols who carry the wood of their carved images and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell him, bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? And who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a savior. There is none beside me. And this is a verse that caused Um, Charles Spurgeon, who they call the Prince of Preachers, this was his, you ever hear people say, this is my life first, do you have a life first? Some people say, I have a life first, here's my life first. Well, if you're Charles Spurgeon, this is his life, verse, verse 22. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. This is J. Vernon McGee's account on the day Charles Spurgeon got saved. This is the verse used by an ignorant man which was responsible for the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was on his way to church one Sunday morning, still not saved, when a snowstorm hit London. Because he couldn't make it to his church, he stopped at a little church along the way. Now the storm was so severe that the preacher did not make it to this little church. So a man got up and said a few words. Spurgeon never knew the man's name. He only knew that he was uneducated. And he chose Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, as his text. And what he lacked in lightning, he made up with thunder. <laughs> he said, this, this verse says, look unto me and you'll be saved. And he began to talk about the verse. God says you should look to him and be saved. And by the time he ran out of ammunition, he had said all he could say about the verse, so he went into the thunder department and began to roar and pound on the pulpit. Look to God, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. He looked way back in the congregation. He saw the young Spurgeon sitting there with a very miserable look on his face. And a man said to Spurgeon, you look to Jesus and you'll be saved. Spurgeon was a very brilliant man, but he, bid, but he did what that ignorant man suggested. He looked to Jesus, and that's how Charles Spurgeon got saved. The guy preached for an hour on verse 22, 
Well, we've made it through three chapters and I'm past my time. And uh, can you imagine me spending this whole hour on verse 22? I mean, you can only read it (laughs) one, one way. And then, okay, you heathen, do it. And that's Charles Spurgeon's testimony. He got saved in a snowstorm. Preacher didn't even show up. Some guy got up and said, well, I'm here. I'll preach on Isaiah 45, 22. I have sworn of myself, verse 23, the word has gone out my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me every knee shall bow. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Every tongue will take an oath. He will say, surely the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who have increased against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified in his glory. The Lord isn't done with Israel yet. The stage is sure set for him to keep his promise to him. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for Isaiah 43, 44, and 45. And over and over again, there is no one like you. And again, we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, as we go our way tonight, we, we pray that we would be just a little bit better equipped in understanding your word. So when it comes time to defending it, we won't make the mistake Dion made and not be able to stand on sound doctrine and give a, an answer from your word. <clears throat> so bless your people as we go out tonight, Lord. You love us while we may say back to you, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.